once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. How are you at playing the long game, where there are no quick rewards and the primary skills are patience and hope? Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series, Joseph, God's Prevailing Goodness, with this sermon entitled, Waiting and Suffering, which covers Genesis chapters 40 and 41. For more information, watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 41 through 23. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers the chief cupbearer, and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into the Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in the Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, the Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me. When it is well with you, please do me the kindness to mention me to the Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was intended, and I was indeed stolen out of the land of Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they have should put me into the pit." When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for the Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, 
from the heart to the lip in conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask, would you work in this place? God, I, I confess this sermon, it feels fragile. And so I ask, Lord, would you take these few loaves and these few fish and would you multiply them in the hearts and the lives of your people? Would you show us Jesus? He's the reason we've come. He is the one that we need. And so, Lord, would you be big and I'd be small. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were to enter into the click house on a weekday morning, uh, you would immediately notice that chaos reigns. Uh, I have four little girls uh, who are amazing and incredible, Mary, Neil, Lucy, Alice, and Maggie, ages seven, five, and two, or six and two. They just turned six. I almost forgot. Can't forget that. It's very important when you turn six. But these girls in the mornings on a weekday, I mean, it is absolutely insane because suddenly you're not only trying to get yourself ready to go to work and to begin your day, you're trying to think of how do I get them ready? How do I get them dressed? How do I make sure that their homework is actually in their backpacks and it's actually completed? How do I make sure that they've got a lunch that is packed in that bag and that makes it into the car and then from the car into the school? But the place that if I'm honest is the most chaotic and the most stressful for me as a parent, it's the breakfast table. Because as soon as those little bottoms hit the seats, the demands just start coming. And if you're a parent, you know what this is like. You'll hear, Dad, Mom, I want a bagel. I want cereal. I want cereal with milk. I want cereal without milk. I want a bagel with butter. I want it with more butter. And they just start coming one after the other until there's this rising chorus of demands that seems to wash over you like an ocean. And as a parent, at some point, you finally just throw up your hands and you go, just stop. No more. Just wait. Wait. Just give me a moment to deal with one demand before you give me another one. Not yet wait. And every time it happens, you can see the fear in my little girl's eyes. That terror, that that thing that they so want, that thing they think they need, that even though I am in the room, that somehow, some way, it is going to be denied them. That I will forget to give it to them and I will leave them lacking and so they're scared. And you know, I, when I encounter that every weekday morning, I get exasperated. Like, if I'm just honest, it's hard. But I get it. Because when we are denied something that we think we need, and we are told that there's going to be waiting involved, I don't know of a single person who hears that and rejoices. I mean, I, I ordered a national championship t-shirt over a month ago, and I have received not one, not two, not three, but seven delay emails so far. And I'll be honest, I really want to chew out some customer service people. Like, I want it to be here now because I am fearful that I have landed in some kind of internet purgatory where this thing is not going to show up, where I'm afraid they forgot me. And I want to make sure that they do not, under any circumstances, forget because I want the shirt. We hate waiting. We hate waiting in traffic. We hate waiting in lines. We hate waiting at doctor's offices. But if there is one place we hate waiting most of all, it is when we are suffering. And not the suffering, not that suffering that comes for a moment and then passes 
but waiting in the kind of suffering where morning after morning, day after day, month after month, year after year after year, nothing seems to change. And though we have begged God, Though we have prayed every prayer we know to pray, we've articulated it in every way we know how, for some reason God has held up his hand and said, not now. Wait. Those are the moments. Those are the moments when just as my girls are afraid the food's not going to come, and I'm afraid the shirt's not going to come. Those are the moments when that fear begins to enter into your heart and you begin to wonder, even as a believer, I know God's with me. I know he is present, but I am afraid that in this thing, maybe he's forgotten me. You wouldn't blame Joseph for wondering that, would you? By the time we open up our text today, Eleven years have passed since he's been sold into slavery. And his life hasn't gotten better. Things haven't even stayed the same. In fact, if anything, they've gone from bad to worse. He's gone from being a slave to a prisoner. And he is sitting in a pit. And yet, at the very same time, he knows without a doubt that God is with him. I mean, the text screams it. It says God is with Joseph, God is blessing Joseph, God is working through Joseph, and yet every time you think that God would zig, what does God do? He zags, leaving Joseph to sit there in the waiting and to wonder, God, why is this happening? How much longer will I have to endure? When are you going to save? When are you going to deliver? And yet I want us to notice this. Here is a man whose faith has been stretched to the breaking. A man who, if his faith suddenly snapped, we wouldn't really blame him, would we? For some reason, this man's faith endures, and the reason that we are given in Joseph's story is not anything that's in him. It's not because Joseph is stronger than we are, or Joseph had more courage than we do, or Joseph was just better than we are. It is simply this. It is the reality of the God who was with him in his suffering and whose love never ceases and whose love never fails. The one who, even when all the world forgets, never, ever does. And in that chapter we just heard read, Genesis chapter 40, we see a love we see a love that never ceases. Even though every circumstance seems to make you question whether that might not be the case. Joseph, Joseph has been in this series of increasingly disappointing events. Every time hope seems to knock on the door, disappointment answers. When he's in the bottom of the pit, thinking his brothers are going to kill him, and he's begging, please, 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 let me go, don't kill me, he gets pulled out of the pit, not to be saved, but to be sold. When he's led away into slavery, God blesses him, and he rises in Potiphar's house till he's second in command, and he's entrusted with everything in Potiphar's house, and then right when things seem to be going well, what happens? Potiphar's wife lies about him. Potiphar has Joseph thrown into prison, and down Joseph goes yet again. Hope comes knocking, and disappointment answers. And the same pattern starts again right here in chapter 40. 
At the end of chapter 39, Joseph has ascended in the prison. The keeper of the prison has made him second in command. The Lord is blessing the works of his hands. And then in chapter 40, two new prisoners show up. Prisoners who are in the pit because Pharaoh is angry with them, his chief cupbearer and his baker, and as soon as they arrive, the captain of the guard, who if you remember from chapter 39, is not the keeper of the prison, but his Potiphar. Potiphar shows back up, and he promptly throws Joseph down again. The son who became the slave and the slave who became the prisoner becomes the slave of prisoners. Look at verse 4. The captain of the guard, that's Potiphar, appointed Joseph to be with them, the cupbearer and the baker, and he attended or served them. You know, if there's a hierarchy in the prison, Joseph, Joseph has just slid down to the very bottom. He is the slave of prisoners, and nothing seems to be going as it should, and then all of the sudden, in this moment where you would think he might despair, God starts moving in tangible ways. Because what happens? The cupbearer and the baker dream dreams. Each their own dream, each with their own interpretation, and they have no idea what they mean. The dreams are of such a nature that they are troubled in their spirits. They are literally terrified at what is happening to them, and they don't know what to do, and they're beginning to despair. And Joseph, Joseph recognizes it as this movement of God that it is. And you have to think, maybe in the back of his head, he's going, maybe this is the opportunity I've been waiting for. God has teed this up so that finally I'm going to be set free. God is the one who gives dreams. God is the one who interprets dreams. Tell your dreams to me. And so they do. The cupbearer shares his dream and the baker shares his. And Joseph gives them the interpretation that comes from the Lord. One favorable and one not so. To the cupbearer, after hearing his dream, he says, here's the interpretation. In three days, you are going to have your head lifted up, and you are going to be restored to Pharaoh's courts. You are going to be placing the cup in his hand again. Good news, you're going to be set free. But to the baker, whose hopes had to rise hearing that interpretation, Joseph says, well, in three days, your head's going to be lifted up too but it will be from your body. You are not going to be restored. You are going to be condemned. And if you can say anything for Joseph, it's that he's not a flatterer, is he? He tells you exactly what God communicates to him. And we learn right here two very important things about Joseph. One, we see a man whose confidence in the Lord and his work is unwavering. Because he is convinced that what has been revealed in these dreams, God is absolutely going to do. But you also see this. You see the anguished cry of a man who has suffered and suffered long and desperately wants to be set free. You know, growing up, when I would hear this story I would hear it in Sunday school. My parents would read it to me in those beautiful illustrated Bibles you had as kids. The, the impression that you kind of get is that somehow Joseph just kind of smilingly, serenely sails through all this suffering. That somehow, as, as difficult as it might be on the surface, somehow he is untouched by its pain. But look at his response to the cupbearer. 
The words that he speaks here, it throws any such notion right out of your head. Because what does Joseph say to the cupbearer when he interprets his dream? When you get out, which you most certainly will get out because God has revealed this, get me out too. Look at his words in verse 14. Only remember me. Don't forget me. When all is well with you, when you are sitting in Pharaoh's courts and you are once again placing that cup in his hand, do not forget me down in this pit. And please do me the kindness. It's the Hebrew word chesed. That word that is used of God's love for his people and of the love they're supposed to have for each other. Joseph says, show me that kind of love. Even if it costs you. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. Why? Because I shouldn't be here. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And then what happens? The interpretations come true, confirming that God indeed was speaking through Joseph. The cupbearer is restored, and the baker he has condemned And then we're told that the cupbearer, verse 23, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And we're told in the very next verse in chapter 41 that two more whole years passed after that day. Sit with a moment for Joseph Imagine what that must have been like to watch the cupbearer walk out the doors of the prison and to think surely any moment he's going to come back through and bring me out too. And then to have one day turn into two and two turn into three and three turn into four and those days to turn into weeks and those weeks into months and then one year into two and to never hear anything. Just the silence of God in the midst of his waiting. God gives no new dreams, telling him that everything's going to be okay. He has nothing but the presence of God with him in the depths of the pit. And you have to think, if Joseph is remotely human, which we know he is, he's got questions, doesn't he? God, why? Why, after 13 years, am I still here? Why am I suffering unjustly when my brothers, they're not suffering right now, at least not that I can see. God, are you angry at me? That's the reason that the cupbearer and the baker were here in prison, is because the Pharaoh was angry. Are you angry? Is that why I'm here? God, how much longer Am I going to sit in this pit and how much longer are you going to hold up your hand and say, not yet, wait? And that question, in the midst of waiting, that is not just Joseph's question. That is a question that we have all asked in some form or fashion. And if we have not, we will. I was reading this past week, this profile in Christianity Today on the church in Ukraine 
And it was story after story of people sitting in a moment where I'm sure they feel a whole lot like Joseph. Of orphan pastors and orphan congregations who are looking at the ruin that the war has caused and wondering, where in the world is God in all of this? Why has he allowed this to happen? How much longer must they endure? And how could all of these things possibly be healed? Of pastors who spent decades pouring into congregations and seeing people blossom and grow in the faith only to have these congregations with decade-long roots suddenly ripped up like weeds and tossed aside. Because the members of their churches have either been captured or killed or called into service or they've scattered to the nations because they want to live. And now they are sitting in the ruins Wondering what is coming next, knowing that even if the Russians are driven out, the world as they know it, it's gone. How much longer will this continue? How will God possibly restore all that has been broken? And those questions, those aren't just Ukrainian questions. Those aren't just Joseph questions. Those are us questions. Those are the questions that we have when we have been begging God to please to heal our marriages. When year after year, decade after decade, we're going, God, this is surely something you would want. Why have you not made it easier? Why is it still so dysfunctional? Why haven't you fixed it? It's the question that maybe you have because you have been struggling with a disease that just will not go away and you have prayed for healing and you have seen others healed, but for some reason with you, God has said, not yet. Wait. God, why? How long? And there is the silence. And here is where we hear the good news of the gospel and the story of Joseph. Because the cupbearer, he forgot Joseph, didn't he? In fact, there's a lot of people who forgot Joseph. But there is one person, there is one person who has not forgotten him even for one second. And that is the Lord who is with him. And who even in the midst of the pit, whose love has not ceased. And you see it in what follows in his story, don't you? Because while Joseph is asked to wait, it is not a waiting without purpose. And the timing of God is perfect. If Joseph was removed from the pit one second earlier, it would have been one second too soon. And he would have missed the timing of God's appointment. Because why is Joseph waiting and suffering? It's not because God forgot him. It's because God has not just remembered Joseph. He has remembered his people and he has not just remembered his people, he has remembered his world. And the promise that he made, that one day he would redeem and restore everything sin had broken, and he would do so through one born of the line of this family. And so Joseph's suffering, it is for the sake not only of the deliverance of his family and the deliverance of the nation in that time, it is for the deliverance of all people across all time. 
And the God who here in Joseph's story, he remembers his people and remembers his promise. That is the one who we have seen fulfill that promise in Jesus, isn't it? You know, we sit there in those moments and we wonder, God, are you angry at me? Why am I here? How, when is this going to end? How long will this go on? And God, he doesn't answer those questions sometimes. But he does tell us this. It is never because I do not love you. Because the love of God is a love, not just that we have heard about, it is a love that we have seen. Because the one who is going to come from the family of Jacob, the one Joseph's suffering was meant to preserve, that one has come in Jesus, hasn't he? And God hasn't just heard the cry of his people in the pit. In Jesus, God has entered into that pit. And God didn't just enter into the pit in Jesus. He entered into our waiting. Because when Jesus was in the garden, begging to be released from the cup, even as Joseph was begging to be set free, what did he hear from his father? Not yet. And as the only innocent one, Jesus endured the suffering that our sins deserved. Not because God didn't care about us, but precisely because he did. He bore the condemnation of the baker so that we could have the restoration of the cupbearer, not just for a moment, but for eternity. And the love that God shows in Christ, that love that never ceases, it is a love that he has also assured us of through his spirit. And this, this I think, is one of the most neglected pieces of the gospel. I don't think we speak about this near enough, and if I have to confess it, I don't understand it nearly enough. But here is what God has done. He doesn't just show us his love in Jesus and that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. He pours out his love through his spirit so that we would know in the depths of our hearts that we are, in fact, his. So that even if we were in the pit, even when we are in the darkest of places, we would know without a shadow of a doubt that if we belong to him, then there are better things coming even if we cannot yet see them. Because we belong to him. And so as Paul says in Romans 5, we don't just endure suffering, we rejoice in suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope doesn't put us to shame even when it seems disappointed so often as it does with Joseph. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, a couple of my girls are in this stage when I try to put them down for sleep at night, there's always something that we've forgotten that they need before they can go to sleep. And usually it's something that is like two floors below us down in the basement that they need right at that moment and they can't go to sleep without it. And Mallory and I will usually go, well, okay, we'll go down and get it and bring it up. And their response is usually like this immediate like fear. I don't want to go down there by myself. I don't want to go down there in the dark. Would you come with me? And we might do it begrudgingly sometimes, but usually we go, sure, I'll go down there with you. And it's an amazing thing. My presence as my daughters go down the stairs, it banishes that fear. 
how much more the presence of a Father who shows us His love in the cross of Christ, dying for sinners, and who assures us of that love through the gift of His Spirit. We may enter into the darkness, and we may sit in the waiting and not know when the end will come, but the steadfast love of the Lord, it is a love He has shown, it is a love He assures us of, and it is a love that never ceases. And here is what gives that hope, can give you such confidence in that hope. It is a love that never fails. You see this in Joseph. Joseph, though the wheels of deliverance have been going really slow, suddenly in chapter 41, it's almost as though the wheel comes to a hill and just starts speeding away. Because all of a sudden, God is moving again in tangible ways. Now it's not Joseph having a dream. It's not the cupbearer and the baker having a dream. It is Pharaoh himself, the most powerful man in the world, dreaming a dream. Two dreams, both different, one interpretation. The problem is he has no idea what it is. It is one that just like the cupbearer and the baker, it troubles him, it terrifies him. He literally can't sleep. And so he calls all of his wise men and the wise men can't help him. And all of a sudden, after two years of forgetting, two years of silence, the cupbearer goes, you know what, I might know a guy. He remembers this young Hebrew man in the pit of the prison who heard his dream and interpreted his dream and did so accurately, and so he tells this to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, he calls for Joseph to come, and literally the language of the text is he quickly brought him out. Thirteen years have passed, slow. Joseph has suffered, and all of a sudden, at the drop of a hat, out. He's shaved, he's cleaned, he's put in a fresh robe, he's brought before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, here's my dreams. Seven cows, full and fat, they come out of the Nile and are immediately followed by seven cows, thin and ugly. And the thin and ugly cows, they proceed to eat the fat and healthy ones. Weird dream. Dream two, seven stalks, or seven ears of wheat on a single stalk. They are full and good, but they're followed by seven ears on a single stalk that are blighted and withered, which then proceed to eat the seven full and good ears. And Joseph hears that dream, and while he makes clear that he is not the one who gives the interpretation but the Lord, Joseph then responds with this. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. This is not an accident. This is not something that is happening outside of God's control and God just so happens to be able to reveal what's going on. No, God, he is the one who has given this dream. And God is the one who is revealing its contents right now. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will, be, there will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine. 
and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of that famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, the fact that there were two, means that the thing is fixed by God. It's not just a possibility. It's not something that just might happen. This is something that is going to come about, and God will shortly do it. Joseph says, here is what God is saying. Here is what is coming. And I love what follows. Because the last time Joseph gave an interpretation, what did Joseph do? He begged to be let free. He said, remember me, show me kindness, get me out. He is now in the presence of Pharaoh, who is, who the, is the person he wanted to be mentioned to, and yet Joseph doesn't ask for freedom. He doesn't even mention his name. He doesn't mention his plight. Instead, you see him say something that is not that different from Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Look at what he says. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. Basically, we're going into austerity measures even though everything is good. We're going to store it up so when the famine comes, we have food to give. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. He says, God, do what you see fit in the timing that you see fit, but here, Pharaoh, here is the plan that you should follow, and God, in this moment, God delivers. Pharaoh looks at Joseph. He hears that interpretation, and he says, no, you're the man. You are the one in whom is the Spirit of God. You are the one who should gather together all the food during the years of plenty, and you are the one who in the years of famine should distribute it. You will be second only to me. And he takes the man who had the royal robe of Jacob's family stripped from his shoulders 13 years before, and he clothes them in a royal robe of Egypt 13 years later. And suddenly people start bowing to Joseph. And the blessings, the blessings of God that come in that moment are to such a degree that in Joseph's mind and heart, it makes all of the suffering look like a small and momentary thing. And if you don't believe it, you have only to look at what he names his sons. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Why? For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph says, God, what you have done, it is a goodness of such overwhelming magnitude that all of this suffering, it is to me as though it never happened at all. 
And in the midst of my affliction, you made me fruitful. The reason my faith did not falter, the reason that I did not break, it was because you sustained me. And that steadfast love that never ceased, it did not fail. Now I want to make something very clear. Jesus in the gospel does not promise that every earthly misery will be a stepping stone to earthly glory in the way it is here with Joseph. But he does promise us this. The same steadfast love that did not fail Joseph, it will not fail you. And while all these earthly miseries, these pits in which God tells us to wait, while they may not be stepping stones to earthly glory, he does promise us this, they will be stepping stones to heavenly glory, the likes of which we cannot even begin to conceive. Because what do we know in the gospel? As hard as things are here, in the midst of our waiting, in the midst of our suffering, that suffering comes to us from the same heart that sent us Jesus. And the Father who sent the Son, he says to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment coming for you anymore. It is done. It is finished. It was completed on Christ's cross. And as those who have my spirit living within them, that spirit that testifies with your spirit that you are indeed children of God, you have this certain hope. That as surely as Jesus was raised, as surely as he is seated with the Father in glory, so too will you one day share in the glory that he has. And as Romans 8.18 says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And when that day comes, when Jesus comes back and he returns in his resurrected glory and power, here is the hope of every Christian. which you experience, it will make you cry with Joseph, God, you have made me forget all of my hardships, everything that I have experienced because the glory is so much greater than the struggle. This is a healing that is as deep as my wounds and as wide as creation. And as I look back at my life, so full of struggle and difficulty in those moments when my faith felt like it was going to break, you made me fruitful in my, the land of my affliction because you sent your son and he saved me and you sealed me through your spirit and you have preserved me to the end. To God be the glory. The love that never ceases, it is a love that never fails. And the God, the God who is with us even now, he does not forget. He remembers. I mentioned a few months ago this book by Daniel Nayeri called Everything Sad is Untrue. And I rec I've mentioned all sorts of books and movies in here, and sometimes I recommend them, sometimes I don't. I highly recommend this one. It's a fantastic book. But it's the story of this young man who, because his mother converts from Islam to Christianity, is forced to flee with her and his sister from Iran to the United States. Their lives are in danger. They leave behind all of their family, their financial security, their jobs, everything that makes their life seem safe and happy, and they come to this foreign land where maybe their lives are safe, but life sure ain't easy. 
because his mom's college and doctoral degrees, they don't count anymore, and the work that she was doing as a doctor, now that's work she can't do anymore, and so she's doing janitorial, and when she gets remarried, since her husband did not convert with her and stayed in Iran, she marries a man who turns out to be abusive and is repeatedly having to flee from his house. And as Daniel, at the end of the book, looks back on their story, and it's particularly his mother, he finds himself asking this question. What enabled my mother? What enabled her to keep moving forward when everything around her seemed to scream at her that she should just give up? And the answer that he came to is just one word. Hope. He writes this. That anticipation that the God who listens in love will one day speak justice. The hope that some final fantasy will come to pass that will make everything sad untrue, unpainful. That across rivers of sewage and blood will be a field of yellow flowers blooming. You can get lost there and still be unafraid. No one will chase you off of it. It's yours. A father who loves you planted it for you. Not like the dad Daniel had who wouldn't even go with his family. A mother who loves you watered it. And maybe there are other people there, but they're all kind. Or better than that, they are right with each other. And they treat each other right. They don't forget each other like the cupbearer forgot Joseph. If you have that, maybe you keep moving forward. What is the source of that hope? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that hope that doesn't put us to shame, but that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And here is what that hope says to you. If you are in Christ, even though you are sitting in the waiting and you are unsure if you can handle it another day, there is a God who says to you, there is a day coming when I will come for you. And it may not be in your timing. It might be a day, it might be a thousand years, but it is sure. And if Christ is with us, the one whose steadfast love never ceases nor fails, then we can know this. As Daniel says in the book's last sentence, we will get there, little by little. Because even if we forget the Lord, in Christ, he will never forget us. Father, we're grateful this morning as we hear your word and think on your goodness. And Lord, we ask now as we come to this table Lord, where you are so faithful to meet with us and to assure our hearts that we are not abandoned but loved, that we are not orphans but children, that that love that you have shown in Christ, it is in fact a love that is for us. And we ask, Lord, would you now work through this moment as we eat from this table to take our hearts and wherever they are and, Lord, to steal them in the confidence that while we may not be there yet, and we, will, we may be waiting. There will be a day when you will come and you will heal in full. 
We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.